You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. Kids we all knew. Oh, Mom. It drove us crazy when we didn't know who it was. But it was even worse after they caught him. They put him away. Oh, the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but somebody forgot to sign the search warrant in the right place, and Kruger was free just like that. What did you do, Mother? A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. Took gasoline it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. Hey everybody, and welcome back to The Pod of the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode, or sometimes multiple episodes at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. Uh, Jerry can't be with us tonight. He had a family commitment that he had to duck off to, so um, I needed to bring in the relief right now, and really excited because this is a guest I have wanted to get for a long while. Um, back when we were recording our um, series in Halloween, I think I even like said a few times, like, we're going to have this person on. And then I just could never get my schedule to line up. So belatedly, welcome to the show, the author of Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. He hosts a podcast of the same name, and he's also one half of the team behind the podcast Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. It's a show that takes a really fun, nostalgic, and an informative look back at some of the cinema's most beloved like horror movies, action, adventures, sci-fi, and comedy films. Tends to be a little bit of a focus on the movies that they grew up watching in the 80s and early 90s. Um, will not lie, it's definitely been like a template for what Jerry and I do here, so... For the first time, let's welcome Jay Blake Fischera onto the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thank you so much, man. Like I said, it's been a long time, uh, we, and I see you decked out in your nightmare <laughs> gear today, which is great. I had to break it out for something. Can't mm -hmm. just be wearing it around the apartment by myself all day. <laughs> um, so it, do you go by Jay or do you go by Blake? I believe it's Blake. Yeah, Blake. You know, okay. the Jay thing started, uh, it's not really worth going into where it started but i i answered to both now especially okay. uh i started going as just jay blake and uh playing music around new york city mm -hmm. in the blues scene here and uh so when i'm out and about people just call me jay because they just mm -hmm. assume blake's my last name but blake's actually okay. my middle name <laughs> yeah my wife and daughter both go by their middle name they're both named elizabeth but they both go by their middle name and it definitely makes the first day of school every year interesting yeah. when 
we have to go in and tell the teacher, no, it's actually Ada, not Elizabeth. And she'll <laughs> yeah. cut you if you call her that name. Well, eventually, yeah, at so. some point when I was, uh, not when I was still little, but uh, not 18 yet, my mom went and actually had, like, my social security changed from Jonathan to Jay. Mm -hmm. So I guess, like, technically... I'm not Jonathan Blake anymore. I'm I'm now like officially now Jay officially Blake. Jay. Did you ever go by Jam Master Jay? <laughs> I've never gone by Jam Master Jay. No. Well, well, today you are. No, we won't do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, we won't do that. Um, so uh, you know, my first question before we even get into the movie, and being like, I know you're part of like the New York uh, Blues Hall of Fame. I believe is that correct? The New York that? Blues Hall of Fame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How has it been not being able to really play out? in the past six months like there's no live music there's no yeah it's been really new york city's been uh really weird um mm -hmm. unfortunately for me especially in that i actually took off i stopped booking gigs and i stopped playing completely uh while i to work on the second score to death book mm -hmm. and then uh i handed in the manuscript march 1st and as I was finishing it up, I started like contacting my the guys in my band and be like, "Let's book a rehearsal. Let's get out and play." And then COVID Pandemic. hit. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually been uh, I don't know over a year, maybe almost two years since I've oh. actually played a gig. I was mm -hmm. getting all ready. I was getting all uh, excited to get out there and start playing again. So you um, got to be itching to get back out there at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's been weird. I've been trying to keep up my chops by just noodling around mm. at the house, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's not the same. No. So, about Elm Street, um, when did you first encounter this series, and, like, what did it mean to you growing up? Because I know for me, like, I was always a Freddy kid, way more than Jason, way more than Michael. Like, Freddy Krueger was my movie villain growing up in the 80s. Yeah. I, uh... You know, honestly, I don't know when I was introduced to Freddy. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, for anybody, you know, I'm I'm in my early 40s. I'm, so anybody that's our age or my age, I assume you're somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was a rock star. You know, yeah. he became like genuinely a pop culture icon, uh, mainstream even. I mean, there was a television show. I remember there was the like 1-900 number where you could call and like he'd get here <laughs> freddie would tell you stories and rack, I, racking up my dad's phone bill and hoping he would never find so it. much trouble because <laughs> my my grandmother who basically introduced me to horror movies like she used to pay the grandchildren five bucks to stay up late and watch like nosferatu with her because she loved horror movies but was too scared to watch them on her own yeah. so when he had the 900 number like i would sleep over my grandmother's house and when she would go to bed i would just like i have no concept of like what's 2.99 a minute to like an 11 year old <laughs> yeah, yeah um so i would just like call 30 times to see if they would get different stories from him and then the phone bill would come in and yeah. be like, why is there $300 worth of 900 <laughs> numbers that all seem to line up on the nights that you slept over? Yeah, I did it at mother's house. I did those numbers once at my grandmother's house. And, you know, I didn't even understand like the idea of like touchtone phone mm -hmm. versus rotary phone. And you mm -hmm. needed like a touchtone phone because it was like a yeah. menu that you had to be like, press one for this, press two for that. 
and I, my grandmother had like a rotary phone. So I'm in like, you know, like swinging the numbers all the way around, trying to get it to go and just racking up like that first minute, that three nine <laughs> over and over again. That's great. But uh, yeah. I will say in terms of Freddy, um, I, I remember for uh, the fourth movie. Mm-hmm. Some channel, I don't, I want to say in my mind it was like Cinemax or HBO because I would visit, I didn't have cable as a kid, but my dad had cable. So when I would go visit him on the weekends, I would watch, you know, movies and all that stuff. And, uh, but some channel would air a lot. I get, I'm guessing in promotion for the movie coming out, a, uh, like a making of the fourth movie where you would see all the special effects and you'd see the makeup and you'd see like how they built like the giant chest for the end with the rubber chest and had actors like pushing their faces through it and all this stuff. And, uh, that special. And then like the bonus tape that came with like a release of the star Wars movies called, uh, from star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga. Those two things just completely captured my imagination. How how much of an influence do you think that hit and you had on you eventually going to film school? Oh, huge! I mean, Dion, who I host, I co-host Saturday Night Movie mm-hmm. Sleepovers with. We we met uh, back in '97 when we were both in film school together and miraculously, randomly put together as roommates uh, mm-hmm. in the dorms. And we both, and I think a lot of people from our generation would probably admit to this as well that like we found the love or the desire or the dream to make movies through special effects because mm-hmm. it was just uh you know like i said those kinds of things those making ofs and in the 80s it became very big to show the behind the scenes stuff and you would see like movie magic and mm-hmm. and all these things and it just kind of like uh it sparked like a dream and uh so i would you know like i I would say full heartedly that, you know, like that making of four was hugely influential on me. Um, we covered the third movie a couple of years ago on uh, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And I'm sure I talk about how that special for four was one of the catalysts that made me want to make movies eventually. Uh, that dream still exists and is unfulfilled. But <laughs> But it's definitely the, the thing that has put me on the trajectory to write about film music, fall in love with horror movies, uh, have podcasts of my own, guest on podcasts like this one. I mean, like, if it wasn't for, like, the making of Nightmare on Elm Street 4, like, who knows what I'd be and, doing right now. <laughs> and, and, that's a, and you know what? And that's a thing that I think goes away for the current generation in some ways because I don't know if you can do that making of and just show a team of animators like <laughs> sitting behind a computer and I yeah. say that somewhat facetiously but like that's not nearly as exciting where you have Fangoria that is putting out like tapes of Tom Savini doing the makeup for like of Dawn of the Dead yeah. and Friday the 13th and all the and Maniac and all those iconic movies that Savini worked on and you're right like as a little boy like at that age I would have been 
11, 12, 13 years old. And you have this really tangible thing where you're like, I can go and make my own Freddy Krueger makeup. Like, sure, yeah. it won't look as good as the movies, but like when you're in sixth grade, who cares? Like, it sure. still looks cool. I shared a short story last week of like in sixth grade making my own homemade freddy krueger glove with like scrap metal from the addition that was being built on the house <laughs> and you know if you do that now someone like me would have to call child protective services because yeah. i'd i'd be a danger but back then it was like screw it just it was fun when i was uh i i taught a class in horror movies uh, at SUNY Purchase, which is actually the college that I went to film school mm-hmm. at, but I wasn't uh, teaching to film majors. I was teaching to like liberal arts students, and mm-hmm. I got very into the idea of like writing a book about horror movies because I had, had to teach that class. I was, you know, I had read every book I could get my hands on, or in that case, in most cases, reread every book I could get that I had, and uh, so I started with like an introduction and one of the things I talked about in the introduction, that book never got completed, but uh, the, your stories about like making things. And then I think even in la- in your last episode, there was a talk about uh, like going as Freddy for Halloween. And mm-hmm. it is such a specific memory for me being in like, I want to say it was fifth or sixth, probably sixth grade, um, you know, in elementary school, uh, fifth or sixth grade and you know people would you bring costumes to school and then you'd like march mm-hmm. around the school grounds <laughs> you know like a halloween parade for nobody but just yourselves right and there was like four freddies uh and i just you know, looking back on it as like an adult like that weird i i don't know if irony is the word but like this idea of like 10 11 12 year old kids like dressed up as like a child killer right <laughs> molester yep. at, at so, school like, someone who was written as a, someone who was written first as a pedophile and then in order to tone down the character he was well we'll just make it that he's killed a bunch of children <laughs> at that point and there he is like plastered on lunch boxes and posters and he's on like mtv on saturday afternoon at like two in the afternoon you could have like robert england in full freddy makeup hosting things it's something that like and it's funny i was looking at twitter earlier today and someone was posting about their own children watching horror movies and how like their 10 year old asked if they could watch the mist and the parent was saying like you know i'm worried that the ending might be a bit too extreme for you and then the child just saying oh no this is how it ends and this 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 and because of all the access to youtube kids now are like going on to youtube and like without seeing the movie getting all of these critical reactions to it and explanations of it and learning about these monsters in that context so my daughter who's 10 and is like real like elm street 3 is her currently her favorite movie in the whole world (laughs) is like she's like this is the best movie in the world and she can tell me like why elm street 2 doesn't really fit between one and three because of the differences in freddie's character without even me me even prompting her she's like this doesn't seem right why is he doing this um but how kids like use youtube now to kind of get this context and like every like every fifth grader in the school i'm a counselor at knows who pennywise the clown is and I guarantee maybe like two of those kids have actually seen 
the it movies and it's it blows my mind yeah well you know but kind of like on a on a similar level but a totally different level i mean it was like that when we were kids too i mean like you know i knew who freddie was Mm -hmm. before i had seen the movies yeah and i remember you know and you always make up these i think as kids it's like you try to and i talk about this on saturday night movie sleepovers a lot uh because i don't know if we I assume other kids did this too, where like you tried to make sense mm-hmm. of things that you like, why has he only got one glove? And it's like, Oh, well somebody, some, some kid who says he saw the first movie says, Oh, well he has two in the first one, but then it gets cut off, <laughs> 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 you know, oh. or I always talk about it. If, uh, like Friday, the 13th, the series, you know, mm-hmm. watching that as a kid and not having any concept of like, that this has nothing to do with Jason with Voorhees Jason. Mm-hmm. and just like creating this scenario in my head where it's like, Oh, like all these items that they must be chasing down must have belonged to Jason at some point. And that's why they're cursed. <laughs> yeah. And they had even talked about at one point, like, well, we'll do an episode where like the hockey mask is one of the yeah. items that they have to, I used to God that show. And then Freddy's nightmares was like, and looking back and trying to watch those shows now is like a 40 something adult. It's a bit cringe. It's definitely <laughs> like, these really were not great. You know, I remember watching never sleep again. And there was a section on Freddy's nightmares and everyone involved was like, yeah, these really weren't great shows. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They were brilliant. And then finding a few episodes and rewatching them and going, oh, yeah, yeah, they really, they really weren't. But like, that was like every Friday night, like 10 o'clock was Freddy's Nightmares, 11 o'clock was Friday the 13th series. And I would watch it in my bedroom on like a five inch black and white portable television set, like analog. You'd have to tune it in now and again. And I like would just fall in love with like, you know, with these, even before I, I don't think I'd even seen a Friday the 13th movie sure. when that show was on the air. So, yeah. And I had a cousin who like, it's funny you say about the kid on the playground who would say, Oh yeah. In the first movie, someone cuts off the other glove. I had a cousin that insisted that like Jason Voorhees talked and had a child and <laughs> the movies are about him trying to get his kid back and yeah. lying son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> Wait, your mind is you're just so angry yeah. after seeing them like wait where's the kid yep so it, yeah that, that was my introduction to jason before i even got to see him so i was very let down by him not being a dad yeah um so, speaking of fathers um let's talk about the father of new line cinema a little bit let's talk about bob shea um because i find him you know, obviously, Wes Craven gets all the credit in the world for being the dad of Freddy, like wrote, directed the movie and just brought in all of these influences from his own life, his own background and the news articles he read on Khmer Rouge and these um, Vietnamese uh, immigrants like dying in their sleep due to their nightmares. But he was not in a position where he could make this movie on his own. So you have fledgling distribution company in new line cinema and Bob Shea, who himself wanted to be a filmmaker and always kind of fancied himself as a lawyer that could make movies being the only guy that would take a risk on, um, Wes Craven's script. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I mean, life in general, but uh, especially art, uh, especially like art that's mainstream, you know, like that's that's sold as a product. I mean, it takes mm-hmm. it takes like that. It takes those two people, you know. It takes like the creative, and then it takes the person that's willing to take a shot on that person. You know, there's so many stories like that. Um, I remember interviewing. Uh, somebody for the new book and the 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 the, the, the uh in in the this the score to death book that i'm working that i'm finishing now uh i talk with a lot of the composers about this element of luck you know like it, it just seems like it's very lucky or it's fortuitous that you were doing this at that time and you met this person and all that and uh somebody pointed out like success in general has two things it's like talent and luck i mean that's all <laughs> mm-hmm. that's it i mean i think i i think i was asking it in terms of fate but he po- but uh, he pointed out it's like any success story has those two you have to have the luck you have to be at the right per- you have to meet the right person you have to be at the right place at the right time whatever that is that's luck and then for that to be to work and be successful you have to have the talent to back it up right and uh, that's just like that's just the way it is, and uh, it, you could call it fate, you could call it luck, but um, the fact that you had a guy like Bob Shea who uh, had the uh, guts to make a company because of his passion, and then have the guts to see something in Craven and that script and put everything on the line for it. Uh, you know, that's something that as I get older, you know, that, that kind of like ignorance of youth starts to disappear and you're like, well, you know, you don't get, you don't, you don't have so much chutzpah anymore, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You start to look at like, oh, there's the mortgage payment or, you know, like I got to put money in the kid's college fund or the risk reward becomes too great. I know like way back when, like a decade ago, I started a a blog called All Things Horror and it did really well and I started it, it literally started probably a few months before my wife got pregnant with our daughter and, you know, I had to make a choice like I think I could really get into film writing and do this as a career or at least put more into it where I could like make it a well-paying part-time job like ignorant me back then but i'm like with the kid on the way it's like nope i'm gonna do this for fun and it'll be a nice hobby and i'll get these benefits out of it but you know trying to think about making that a career is just not gonna happen but you have shay who was in his mid-40s i think when because he starts a new line when he's about 27 years old fresh out of um, law school where he actually had won a couple awards for short movies. And one of the fun things I learned when researching for the show is he actually won a short film in uh, the same year that he had to share it with Martin Scorsese, a little nobody, um, back when they were like in college together. Like, so, you know, in another world, like you're looking at the Irishman with Bob Shea, you know, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, what, he, what he, was really good at when he started new line cinema is like finding all of these student films in foreign movies and distributing them across college campuses 
So all over the country you have, and then also what he said, it's like he realized he knew copyright law very well. So he saw things like Reefer Madness had no longer had a copyright on it. And he was able to go get the copyright for it. And you have this like cautionary tale from the 1930s about the evils of marijuana. 30 years later during, you know, the height of uh, flower power and free love, like it plays like a farce at that point. So it's like the point of high comedy across college campuses. And all of a sudden he's building this little empire out of like this rinky dink office. But he realized quickly that, hey, if we want to make some money and turn this thing around to become bigger than we already are, we can um, make horror movies. And I think their first attempt was with Jack Shoulder, who would go on to direct Freddy's Revenge, but they made, I think, in 81, a little movie called Alone in the Dark, which did all right and brought in some money, but really it was Craven's movie. There's a reason why Shay calls, and, and New Line was called The House That Freddy Built, because that just went on to be a massive success for the studio. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, all those stories are when you hear anything, I mean, you know, there's less, I think there's less excitement about something Mm -hmm. like Halloween when you hear like that, how that got made, but Mm -hmm. they're all like, they're all stories in the, you know, in themselves and they're all like fascinating. And that's why like Mm -hmm. you and guys like you and me, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. probably the vast majority of the people listening to this conversation, (laughs) like devour books and documentaries Mm -hmm. about that stuff. I mean, of course we want to know the origin of the things we love, but it's also, they're just like fascinating. That's like, it's those stories are filled with drama and, yeah, (laughs) and things like that. So, um, and it just created, I mean, it just, obviously it created something that, you know, just like we said earlier, just for me, Freddie was, I mean, he was literally a pop culture icon. I mean, it was crazy, but it all stems. It all Mm -hmm. stems from like this little movie in in, like the mid '80s uh, that these two guys were, you know, ready to take a and and everybody that worked for them (laughs) were willing to take a gamble on. Right, and I think too, what's what's really it was really like looking back at how it was made and what it took to get done, like. There was like animosity for years between Craven and Shay, not just because like Craven basically signed away anything and everything to get the movie made. Like he took no points on like the film and no if this thing becomes he was like, there's never going to be a sequel. Who's going to make a sequel to a movie about, you know, a burned up dream demon that like kills children like this is a one and done Then I'm moving on. Um so he like lost out probably on like tens of millions of dollars basically that he could have made because Shay leveraged everything he had. And then Shay would stand over his shoulder uh, and be like, why don't we do like a sequence? Like I think the first day of shooting Craven told a story about how like Shay was like literally standing over his shoulder asking why he's trying to take so many takes of like a car driving off and getting the shot reflected and like in a rear view mirror. And I think Craven turned around and said, look, dude, if you're going to sit here and tell me how to direct this movie, you can like fuck off right now and like (laughs) hit the bricks because like, you're not telling me my job. Um, The, which a sequence I really love 
the um, nightmare sequence where like Nancy is trying to run up the stairs and yeah. she steps into, I guess what was Bisquick is they say how that was made. Like, oh yeah, it's pancake batter. Uh, it gets really sticky. Like that was Shay's idea and he insisted that was in the movie. So Cray's concession, uh, Craven's concession was, all right, you can call action and cut during this scene because like, just get off my back. You want to direct a movie so bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's the thing is, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, it's, that's mm-hmm. a tough thing when you find uh, that producer, distributor or whatever. That That mm-hmm. is creative. You know, even yeah. when, uh, you know, there's all those kinds of stories. You know, like there's the story where like Carpenter was originally uh, talking to, to about directing Exorcist 3. Mm-hmm. And he... And he met and like part of Blatty's deal, William Peter Blatty's deal was uh, he got to like, okay, the director or something. So he had to meet with Blatty, who wrote the book that it's based on, wrote the Exorcist book and wrote Mm -hmm. the script for Exorcist 3. And Carpenter says that like he just he could tell that Blatty really wanted to direct it himself. Right. And he didn't want to direct a movie with this guy who clearly wants to direct this movie because it was because mm-hmm. you know, Blatty would have just been a huge pain in the ass the yeah because he knew he would have just stood over his shoulder the whole movie and said what about this or yeah. can you move the camera over a few inches here or yeah and Carpenter wasn't going to have Carpenter was not a guy that's going to have any of that the guy who insists that his name appears in front of every movie he directs is not going to tolerate and i'd just be like dude raise your hand if you directed halloween all right (laughs) just like did you do escape from new york no then get the hell off of my set right now all right you could see that going um really poorly um so you had mentioned like the making of like watching the making of part four and seeing how like the effects for that were done with like the um, pizza with all the faces on it and the arms coming out and the, Oh God, the cockroach. Yeah. uh, The girl turning into a cockroach. What are your thoughts on David Miller's initial makeup for Freddy Krueger? Cause I think that is what it so makes the character. And I know for me, I remember I would watch Friday the 13th and I would want to see the reveal of the Jason makeup and you would get it for a few seconds. But here, even though Kruger's only on screen for like, I think eight minutes and change, you get to see that makeup up close and personal. Like what were your impressions of that when you saw it and how that influenced his character? Well, it probably, I mean, the first one was probably not the first movie I saw. I probably Mm -hmm. saw four or three first Mm -hmm. and three around three is where we get the, the, where the makeup it's subtle, but the makeup the makeup changes to what we will, right. for what Freddy will kind of always look like from now sure. on. And so, like the first movie and the second movie, it's still they're like they're still finding it. Mm-hmm. It's not till third where it just like I don't know who makes a decision like okay, this is how it's going to look, or if just the guy who did the makeup for three. Yeah, I think Kevin Yeager th- would have been the guy by part three <clears throat> making those choices. Yeah, and then he just, and then, you know, maybe he went on and he did all of them from there. Yeah. But, uh, so I'd be mean, the first one, you know, you can see like the hats different in certain shots and the, uh, and the sweater's a little bit baggier than it later becomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's like, uh, it's almost like Hobo Freddy. In the first yeah. <laughs> 
things don't quite fit right. Which definitely makes sense, given like his origins as like a hobo that Craven saw outside his window and that kind of scaring him yeah. as a kid. Um, yeah, and I think England even talks about how like Craven had very specific pants that he wanted um england to wear in a nightmare on elm street and they were super uncomfortable pants they were like way too tight and shiny and they basically got all up in the jimmies you know so he was like already miserable because he's covered in like latex and ky jelly for 10 hours a day and he's in the movie for eight minutes and now he's got these nut huggers that are like really uncomfortable and i think at one point england like lost kind of like flipped out on crave and like why do no one's gonna look at my pants uh, like, why are you doing this? But I just think that the the makeup in this first movie is so, it's so, and some of the effects in particular, like I love the way that Freddy loves to mess with his victims, not just by torturing them, but by torturing himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing, the, one of the interesting things about the 80s and, uh, and like the special effects boom for lack of a better term. And I, I think it's uh, one of the things that we constantly talk about on Saturday Night movie sleepovers is like trying to put things in a context and to think that 10 years before nightmare on Elm street, like they couldn't have made Freddie look like that, mm-hmm. you know, like the technology of like latex makeup and all that stuff, like wasn't good enough at that point. Right. <laughs> like it's literally, you know, technology is what makes these decisions. You know, I, I sat in on a on a watch party for the uh, In Search of Tomorrow documentary. We, t- we watched uh, Escape from New York. And, mm-hmm. like, Escape from New York couldn't have been shot, you know, earlier than that. It was, like, the invention of, like, a new lens that allowed them to shoot in darker areas and the invention of new lights that were bright enough to shoot outside in the middle of like St. Louis in the middle of the night. And reason why in the eighties we see like, you know, uh, you know, American world from London and Freddie and all this makeup and Tom Savini starts to like really come into his own. It's partially like, you know, a wave of young, talented, crazy guys who grew up watching, you know, uh, screenings of all the Lon Chaney and all that groping on right. television and seeing how that stuff and then having their imagination pushed and then pushing the, the, it level forward. But it's also just like the technology and in the case of makeup, like the chemistry and the science of it just had to come around. And so it's an, it's, it's almost unfortunate that we only get about 10, 12, 13 years of this before CGI kind of gets fully introduced and in a lot of ways takes over because who knows how, you know, if, if makeups and practical effects and miniatures and all that stuff were still the norm, how much better they, they would develop, they would evolve, but instead it kind of got all got caught off like in the mid nineties. Yeah, no, you're right. And to me, like you, the some of the effects in this movie still hold up in such a large way today. Like in particular, you see Tina's death scene in this movie, and 
seeing how that was done with like a room that they could literally rotate 180 degrees just by like because it was so balanced you could push it with a finger to get it to rotate and you have everything stapled and glued and starched down to the point where she looks like she's on the ceiling but it's just the camera moving with it um and they try to do that in later works like with cgi and it just never looks right it just never looks good to me yeah um that glenn's death where you have an impossible amount of blood (laughs) coming out through the bed and i remember uh you know when you hear them talk about it like oh yeah we almost got electrocuted doing that and uh because all the blood ran to one side and it looked really cool but there were sparks everywhere we thought we were going to catch on fire and Wes ended up almost passing out because he was upside down for 20 minutes, like (laughs) strapped to a chair and we had to keep him up there. Like that stuff, because it is really being done. And I know like when I watch Friday the 13th now and you see like the most iconic kill in that movie is the Kevin Bacon and you see it now in HD and Blu-ray. And I know there's going to be like a 4k transfer of the first, (laughs) which I'm like, maybe we don't need that. Maybe, we should watch this on VHS on an old I, CRT. I know exactly what you mean. You know, you see that kill now and it's like you can see where Kevin Bacon ends and where the prosthetic begins. Yeah. But it's still, I think because it's a tangible item, I can forgive that more than like Event Horizon's a great movie. It's <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun, but the CGI in that now just, it doesn't hold up to yeah. what it once was. Yeah, I mean, you know, my rant about, like, the beauty of special effects in the 80s and all that stuff. I mean, clearly, so much of it doesn't really hold up, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays. But, like you said, like, in a way, it somehow holds up better than, you know, some of the stuff, like, Spawn, the movie. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, in a way, like, it does kind of hold up better. And I've I've always said, you know, the thing about, like, the original Star Wars movies and then, like the the episodes one through three or even it's like okay maybe the millennium falcon was you know two feet long but it was real right you know it was real and you can just tell i mean clearly cgi has come a long way just in the last you know 10 years let alone the Mm -hmm. last 20 years um and i think people are getting smarter about how they use it but uh there is something about well, there's also just like a charm to it, and that it that could just be nostalgia for guys like us, or you know, viewers like us, mm-hmm. uh, to look back at that stuff. I mean, because there is like when you look at stop motion, you're like yeah, it doesn't look, you know, like the way things move in stop motion right. is it's a little jerky, but there's like a charm to it, and it could, like I said, it could just be like for us nostalgia, and so like we, you know, we we like it because of that. Right. Or it could just be that like, you know, because we grew up with it, we're conditioned to just accept that. And that the kids today are conditioned to accept CGI is like, that's just right. the way it is. Um, some of the stuff in nightmare on Elm street. Yeah. Like obviously those big practical, like moving moves, uh, rooms around. I mean, it's a very, that's a very different ball game than makeup effects. And that stuff is still amazing. Uh, 
but then you get like the stretching arms when you look at it today it's like eh, and even you know you hear right. like the <laughs> you hear like the cinematographer talk about it it's like even then he was like i don't know if this it is doesn't work look so yeah, this looks pretty bad <laughs> but i think in a movie like elm street i forgive that and it's funny i was literally just thinking the stretching arms like right as an example of nostalgia but in a way, it's almost forgiving in a series like A Nightmare on Elm Street because you're not dealing with reality, yeah. because you're dealing with like the dream world and things are going to look off. Things are not going to look like they're supposed to. So you have these like goofy arms. And I remember when I was rewatching this movie and knowing how critical they were of that specific effect and how long like they spent hours trying to get that right. And I think I got to like two Mississippis before the effect was over and like that's as long as it was on the screen for yeah um and then it cuts to and i guess like freddie was played by a little person like that moment when like his arms are the normal size but he looks like he's two feet tall and he's chasing amanda weiss's character of tina yeah. i guess they actually had like a little person in the costume chasing her at that point and that's why it looks so strange but that you can almost forgive it in a movie where like, hey, we're dealing with the nightmare world. We're dealing with these parts of your brain um, and the parts of the brain that accept dreaming and nightmares look very much like the parts of our brain uh, that psychotic people have. Like they exhibit a lot of the same traits. Yeah, That's why like psychologically when you're in a dream, you're able to kind of accept all the weird things going on around you. Um, which we, if we saw that like walking around our waking state uh, would kind of drive us mad at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly um, the device of dreams in, the, in this, I mean, they tried to do it and stuff like uh, dreamscape, you know, but the idea dreams, of, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it's perfectly cinematic. I mean, that's what the, like the surrealists were, you know, obsessed with was making art that was kind of generated from the subconscious. And so when you see stuff like, you know, Unchi and Andalou and then, you know, the stuff that uh, uh, Jacques Cocteau was doing, you know, it's mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, they're trying to explore like this idea of, you know, cinema. And of course, various other kinds of arts. When you get to Dali and also the all the writings, but they're mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, they're just trying. They're trying to capture th that subconscious through uh, onto whatever medium they're working on. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when it comes to horror movies, it's kind of a perfect uh, vehicle for creativity. And so, th I, th I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's why, on top of you know, the character of Freddy, but just the idea of uh, exploring horror through uh, dreams is what has made this franchise like so successful and had longevity because it allows the filmmakers to have their minds run wild. And when you look at like three and four, you know, they're very... Um, the set pieces, the the mur the killings and all that stuff, and it's in this one too, but especially when we get to like more characters being involved, they're like little they're like little epi episodes kind of <laughs> in, yeah. in their own right, and so we get to have like all these different flavors uh, where you get to the filmmakers get to kind of explore the the craziness and and not 
be confined to the idea of like just a you know a person being chased on foot or mm-hmm. whatever they get it's like you can have like a naked woman inside of a you know a water bed right <laughs> you know and it's like or you could have freddie you know handling this guy like it's a marionette or you can have a woman turning into a cockroach and it just it becomes cinematic in a right. way that other horror movies can't ever be and I think the dreams in the first movie work so well because they are rooted more in the real world, because there are moments when they start where you're not sure that you're in the real world yet. And it's not until like Nancy sitting in her classroom and then looking out the door and seeing her body, her best friend who's been killed in a body bag being dragged down the hall in this trail of blood. And everybody else seems to be thinking like, Eh, typical Wednesday here in high school. Yeah. That's when you're tipped off that things aren't right. Um, well, in some ways, they, I mm-hmm. mean, for me anyway, that's more like realistic for dreams. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference between like how we perceive like the surrealism or the ultra or the uh, heightened reality. Like mm-hmm. to me, nightmares are, or dreams in general, nightmares are more of a heightened reality. Uh, yes. more than like totally surreal. I remember uh, one of the semesters that I taught the horror class, we, we watched Texas, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And while I was watching it with them, it just occurred to me and it never occurred to me before that, no matter how many times I watched it, I was like, this is the m- most realistic depiction of a nightmare to me. Like she just like, as how hard she runs, she cannot... <laughs> get away she always ends up where you know where in in the in the devil's den you know when she's tied up and they're mocking her for crying during the dinner scene of texas chainsaw massacre they're just like they're over you know they're hyper and that's why i think that's what you're responding in my opinion that's probably what you're responding to in this in nightmare in the first nightmare on elm street is that it's more just like heightened reality you know like there's leaves in the hallway or mm-hmm. someone talk, you know, the, the woman, talk, the girl that she bumps into in the hallway talks in Freddie's voice, which in a, you know, like totally I've had dreams where maybe they're not talking in someone else's specific voice that I've heard before, but like, you know, like that lower pitch or, you know, just like something weird. Something's just not right. right. And, and I think that's, what what you're right to me that is what works so well of course as we get into like third and fourth and fifth and you're trying to extend a franchise things have to get a little more outlandish because you have to top itself but that's one of the things that kind of grounds the original one in kind of a more realistic uh exploration of kind of the subconscious right and it works like you had just said it works in a way that our dreams um that our dreams work and that when we're unless you're having a dream that is rooted in like a very specific trauma which is something that you know that is how people do dream um you have this it's what we would call like an idiopathic nightmare it's basically they are rooted in things like showing up naked to your classroom the day you have a test um they're all about your own fears and that's why we have them so often is like kids and teenagers they're rooted in your own fears of growing up. They're rooted in your own fears of acceptance. They're rooted in these fears of not really 
knowing who you are and it's kind of like nightmares serve as kind of like a processing dump in some ways like all of these anxieties you have that are inside you um are kind of like dumped out of your head during the night times so you can kind of wake up and hopefully function the next day um it's something that i'm trying to write about right now specifically with this movie and nightmare disorder and um how the how what the effects of the dreams were on the kids overall yeah. and to your point like you had mentioned how the films interconnect i would say the elm street series more so than any other franchise because you have the halloween movies and they have all these disparate timelines and if you try to make sense of them you look like charlie from it's always sunny in philadelphia <laughs> in front of the cork board like you can't do it um <sighs> Good luck yeah. with the Friday the 13th movies of two, three, and four take place over like a long weekend, but you have a guy who's like hunting Jason who killed his sister a day ago, you yeah. know, um, and then he's in space. So, <laughs> spacing, as I like Yeah, to call and it. you just kind of like start like you have a trilogy based on one character, except parts four and part six forget five ever happened, and every movie the character is played by someone different. Um, but Elm Street, you go from like almost with the exception of part two, which really like only references part one and then it's completely forgotten about when, by the time you get to Dream Master. Part one is the story of Nancy. She returns in part three and she hands the story off to Patricia Arquette. Um, part four, the story is handed off to Alice, and then she continues that story through part five. You have one really nice long story arc that carries over through four of the first five movies in a continuity that is, it's not perfect, and it's probably not something where they they never had that in mind, like, oh, let's tell, let's, they were just going from movie to movie to movie, saying let's make some more money because Freddy's hot right now. But there was more care, I think, put into the characters of this franchise more so than others because none of these movies are really it's not like friday the 13th where they're body count films like how many people can we kill in each movie this was much more about fear and terror and imagination than it was like we need to kill 20 people in this movie yeah yeah i mean it's it's it i mean it's it's an interesting series in that, like, I think it gets lumped together with, you know, slasher movies, but it mm -hmm. kind of is its own thing. I mean, yeah. in terms of, you know, what the convention of the slasher movie kind of becomes in its initial few years when it first kind of builds power and then kind of Freddy. Then the, 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 the invention and then the, uh, success of the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the Freddy Krueger character then kind of gives birth to like the new wave of slasher movies which are mm -hmm. things like well then I don't even know if you'd consider them slasher movies but things like Leprechaun and mm -hmm. Chucky and uh you know the later Wishmaster like this mm -hmm. idea of like these killers or these monsters with personalities <laughs> well I mean Chucky is definitely I mean, Chucky, you have like a wisecracking toy doll, you know, the killer doll. Like I, you definitely see roots of Chucky in um, Freddy Krueger. I don't know if that movie exists without the Elm Street. And 
I'm a firm believer of saying like if the Nightmare in Elm Street movies aren't as sex successful as they are, we probably don't get Halloween for. Yeah. Because by that time, Michael Myers was dead since 81. Halloween 3 had not made, well, to be honest, like it was a moderate. I know people say it flopped, but it did okay. It just didn't do like the kind of money the first two movies did. But nobody was talking about bringing back Michael Myers. Yeah at that point so you know all of a sudden you and you have paramount with jason going like look at all the money that the elm street movies are making and paramount had always treated the friday the 13th films like this dirty little secret it's like you know the cousin you have that like spits up on himself all the time and is always dirty and never bathes you really don't want him to go to the family (laughs) functions but you have to bring him like that's what the friday the 13th movies were to like paramount they're like oh jesus do we have to make it up well they make a lot of money like all right you know but that's always been horror really i remember Mm -hmm. when i interviewed uh the composer for the for my first book uh christopher young who scored the second uh nightmare on elm street movie Mm -hmm. uh as well as the first two hellraisers etc um he was one of the first he's one of the few uh, composers in the first book that are actually is actually a horror fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the younger guys are, but of his generation, it's rare to find uh, composers that are genuine horror fans. Chris is one, and he's like, you know, and he's very conflicted with his career and how he uh, later, you know, how he became, how he 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 conflicted with like he kept doing horror movies and maybe he shouldn't have done that. But mm-hmm. um, he says, you know horror is the bastard son of you know (laughs) of hollywood i mean Mm -hmm. it's the it's the thing that you know nobody wants to recognize they don't want to give awards to but yet it has saved studios it has you know it makes more money uh you know on the dollar than you know so many other movies and yet it doesn't get recognized it's maybe it's it's push it pushes innovation in terms of technology, it pushes the boundaries in terms of, you know, social commentary and things like that. And yet, like you said, with the, with, with the way Paramount treats, treated Friday the 13th, it's like mm-hmm. they just want to kind of like lock it. They want it, they want it to be yeah. castle freak. They want to like lock it up in the basement. <laughs> and just like throw it. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like basket case. <laughs> just put it in here and look at this deformed little monster. I think one of the differences with, with Elm Street, and I, and I think maybe why it's my favorite series overall is, you know, I mentioned Bob Shea earlier, but I think he always felt this sense of like grat- either gratitude or loyalty because he's like, this really, like, this movie is what allowed me to build my company. Yeah. So as much as you might rag on him for like, and I want to talk to you in a few minutes about the ending of this movie because I didn't get to talk about it last week <clears throat> and get your thoughts on Nancy in the ending. Um, but it was always like, hey, we would not have a company without this movie. So to me, there was always a lot more care that went into the Elm Street series. And it wasn't like they were getting, at the time, top-rated directors, but he had a real eye for talent. So you have Chuck Russell, who would go on to make like The Mask and launch Jim Carrey's career. You'd have Rennie Harlan go on, you know, I love the part in the documentary where like Rennie Harlan would just show up every day outside New Line Cinemas and get dirtier and dirtier until 
they basically said like all right just make the friggin' movie and leave us alone at this yeah. point just here's like a bar of soap and a washcloth just get out of here um but he had a real eye for these young and up-and-coming directors and then whatever people's thoughts are on freddie's dead and i really enjoy that movie um allowing like rachel talalay to who had been on board as a producer since the first movie and had worked with john waters saying you know what we want you to bring this series to a close for us there yeah. was always more care that went into this series and i think that's why i don't think it suffers the lows that friday the 13th suffers at points or that halloween suffered at points where those movies were just more like we got to do something so just get it out there and like we'll we'll figure it out later i always <laughs> felt like there was more care into this one yeah well i would definitely say that uh shay had an eye for talent i mean that's mm-hmm. i mean because when you look at the at the the you know four five six of the halloween series i mean i happen to really i have an affection for five and Mm -hmm. it's not and when i you know when i revisited it in recent years um i certainly saw why people don't care for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) would you say you're team tina like me i'm (laughs) definitely team tina (laughs) yeah but you know the reason why i like that movie is because it Mm -hmm. like it went for it you mm-hmm. know, like there's some really like genuinely crazy set pieces in that one. Mm-hmm. Like the the when Jamie's stuck in the in the in the wash laundry in shoot. the laundry mm-hmm. chute. Like that is that's like one of the great set pieces mm-hmm. of that whole series in my opinion. Right. And uh and you know, I remember I bought the the V like the Anchor Bay VHS for that. Mm-hmm. I remember I was I was with my mom at like Walmart. I was visiting her. I was home for college mm-hmm. for either a visit or the summer and we were at Walmart and there was like they uh Walmart had just thrown a bunch of Anchor Bay videotapes into like a shopping cart and it was like mm-hmm. on sale for like a dollar ninety nine mm-hmm. or whatever. So my mom was like, Do you want something from here? And I was like, Yeah, I'll take the clamshell, like mm-hmm. widescreen version of uh <laughs> uh of Halloween five and I brought it home and I was popped the tape in and I was watching it and I took out the sleeve. There was an essay by, um, I I think it was Michael Felsher who does a red shirt, uh, productions where he does all the bonus features for Mm -hmm. everything. The shout factory does now and all that stuff. And he pointed out that like no filmmaker, I mean, maybe producers do, but no director goes into a movie trying to make like, a bad movie. They right. all they all are trying to make the movie that's going to reinvent or rejuvenate or give a rebirth to the series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it kind of like, you know, it's kind of a given, but it's something that I think we forget. Um so like you know, everybody that made all like the bad sequel the all the sequels that are less preferred, let's put it that way, for all these horror movie sequ- uh s- series they were all trying to do the best movie mm-hmm. of the series. Uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, talent, budget, uh, schedule, uh, whatever it is, it just happened to work uh, with Nightmare on Elm Street on a lot of on a lot of levels. Um, part of that is that like you could find a guy from where I can't remember where Rennie Harlan's from, but you can grab him 
off of like coming off of prison, his first American movie. Right. <laughs> and be like, this guy is talented and he's young and he's not established here. We can get him cheap. cheap. Yeah, he, we, can, we can get him cheap, but he's imaginative and he's got talent. And if you can find, if you can go to like the minor league clubs and you can find that talent <laughs> for low money, then that's when you have something that really sticks. And now forever three uh, was, cons- you know, was loved, you know, because it was like Craven wrote the script and uh, Nancy comes back and, and all this stuff. But I think I see if, if judging from social media, like four has had this huge resurgence or has had a massive like when we so i put out like a spreadsheet asking people to sign up like and it's not a given i'm like if you're interested put your name down because that's i just try to cast a wide net and then i go in and all right i want this specific person to come on this show i'll ask but then i have backups at that point we have so many people that signed up for part four then I'm like, maybe we break that into two shows <laughs> yeah, because yeah. like so many, if I can get, um, I was stunned by how many people want to come on that one. I think you're right. Like I think dream master is still, it's people like one in three are like, they go back and forth and what their favorite is, but yeah, dream master all of a sudden has this huge resurgence. And, you know, I think I want, we're going to talk about Nancy in a moment. So I don't want to go too far off the path here, but I think Alice in parts four and five is definitely underappreciated as a great horror movie heroine. Yeah. She has a really great arc. I think Lisa Wilcox is great in the role as Alice. I really love that character. Um, and part four in particular, the friendships in that movie feel the closest as they do to the first movie where you really feel this group of like, when the characters like when her brother rick dies in that movie you really feel it not just because like you want more of christian slater in that movie (laughs) oh it's not christian slater my bad but you really want more of him in that but because like you see these connections between the characters i thought that's something that this first movie did really well we talked a lot about amanda weiss last week and she's only in the movie she's like in there for like 19 minutes altogether. yeah but Amanda Weiss does such a fantastic job of developing that character and you get a real sympathy for Tina in the short time that she's on the screen um, which leads me to ask like to where do you see Nancy Thompson ranking in terms of like horror heroines like her place on the Pantheon uh, you know I that's a, it's a tough one because one there's so many mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many worth noting um i mean she was never she was never really my favorite i mean mm-hmm. but like so the breaking first... news dead last <laughs> <laughs> the worst no no i mean i'm kidding she mm-hmm. certainly uh she does something that I'm not going to make the bold claim had never been done before. Cause I, mm-hmm. you know, I could just be, yeah, a movie could be slipping. Um, Someone will find you on social media and scold you. Yes. But she does something that some of the more uh, notable ones like, um, you know, Laurie Strode and, and uh, Sally from Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. and stuff like Nancy goes on the offense, which yeah. is, 
which is great. And I mean, you could argue that like uh, Susie Banyan from Suspiria kind of does because she's trying mm-hmm. to solve a mystery. Fun fact, I've never been able to make it more than 20 minutes into Suspiria. <laughs> I've tried four times. I've walked out of movie theaters. I'm like, nope, can't do it. And I love the remake, oddly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, I can't do Argento. I just, I, aside from Deep Red, I can't do it. Well, Argento is, uh, even when I, I showed Suspiria in, in the class, I kind of pointed out that, you know, I said to them, like, you're either going to see this and you're going to love it, or mm-hmm. you're just not going to like it. And then that's, there's really, like, no in-between with Argento. Mm-hmm. Like, it either, I think because Argento's movies are so visceral, and the story is not really important that you either watch it and you connect with it on some level that's not uh, a like narrative interest mm-hmm. <laughs> and it either hits you and you either watch it and you let it wash over you and you connect with it or you don't. And that's just the way Argento is. And, you, yeah. know, you know, one could argue like that's how all movies are, but there's something very specific about his movies that I find like there's very few in between. Either, like, what was re- the reaction from your students? Like what was the mix overall once they had watched it? I think they, I mean, I, like I said, I gave them the spiel ahead of time. I said, like, look, don't worry about, like, what's going on in this movie. Just let it happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and then, and I said, like, some of you are going to like it, some of you aren't going to like mm-hmm. it. And I think with, like, viewing it through that lens, I think they, they accepted it pretty well do you do you like tell them like maybe bring some edibles or something to you know at a time like, look i can't legally can't pass them out as your instructor but you know <laughs> if you want to bring something in a little sucrets tin can and well enhance if, your experience if then, you ever go with like if you guys ever do like the mother trilogy uh i'm sure jerry will make me well, sure, like, so. i would i would be happy to come on and talk about okay Argento or like his mother or his uh the animal trilogy and talk about giallo because there's a whole other thing that we can't get into here because it's mm-hmm. completely irrelevant but those movies are made in a very specific way because mm-hmm. of how they were viewed by italians at the movie theater <laughs> And so, like, the way they're paced and stuff has to do with that the movie, going to the movies was a very social thing. Mm-hmm. So, it's, they're made, they're, they're paced and made in a certain way for specific reasons that don't really, that actually probably apply more today mm-hmm. with social media and that, like, we're all on our phones on Twitter right. while we're watching so a movie. So, so, what you're saying is, like, the draft house model where you go, you sit down, you put your phone away, and you don't chat during a movie doesn't really apply overseas. Like if I went to see this movie in Italy, there might be more conversations well, going on. Around. I don't know about today, but back okay. when, back when like spaghetti westerns and giallo mm-hmm. and horror were made, the TV hadn't really uh, taken off in Italy. So mm-hmm. people would go to their local movie house and you would bring like wine and bread and you'd sit there and you'd say, like, Hey, what's up? And you would That's chat. That's fascinating. Okay. You, that you would chat and mm-hmm. then reason why like then some crazy set piece happens yeah. is because the filmmaker wants to then yeah. grab the audience back to attention and yeah. it's and it's also why the story never really matters all that much because they mm-hmm. can't make it too complicated because people are not paying attention to yeah. <laughs> and i know like recently like the chattanooga film fest did all 
online this past spring and it was great because it was an opportunity for a lot of us that like miss going to film festivals and it was definitely during the height of shelter in place and the lockdown i want to say it was it was mid-April because I know that I had just booked a flight to go out to the festival yeah. when it gotten it was going to be over like April break for school, um, and a lot of us like there was like one movie like let's all live tweet it at like nine o'clock when it you know and then I remember trying to do that and I couldn't do it like after twenty minutes I'm like I can't focus on both right now so <laughs> it's really fascinating to hear that because I think that would if I've seen a movie like Elm Street I can tweet and look around and check my you know because I've yeah. seen it a million times but yeah that's interesting to hear that that's what it would be like at that time overseas so yeah. we will definitely have you on when we get to Argento on a on a note before we go because I know mm-hmm. you have specific things you want to hit uh, mm-hmm. with Nightmare on Elm Street. For me, uh, I'm conflicted about uh, my my love my love for uh, the, the especially the first movie is a bit conflicted in that mm-hmm. you guys talked about last time um, the origin of how uh, Wes Craven read in like the L.A. Times or whatever mm-hmm. these articles about these Asian refugee mm-hmm. teenagers who were dying in their sleep and you know there's the the one that's always pointed out which is like the kid whose father was a doctor and that was, mm-hmm. his dad was making him take sleeping pills so that he would fall asleep. And it turns out that like, he wasn't taking them. He finally falls asleep in the middle of the night. He starts screaming by his time. His parents get there. They're, he's dead. They discover that the, he never took the pills. They discover a uh, coffee pot uh, in, you know, hidden in the closet or whatever. And one of the things when I hear, when I heard that story, I was like, Man, I wish I I wish Wes Craven made that movie. <laughs> yeah, because there was something about, um, and I say this fully in love with the character with Freddy, loving the sequels, fully realizing that if he didn't do it the way it was made, uh, you know, it, it would have changed horror, and we wouldn't have you know Robert England. But there was something about personifying that. Mm-hmm. fear or whatever like whatever was killing those kids and those stories that somehow like cheapens it or makes it less scary <laughs> that makes sense no and i get it i think that that is not that's a fair criticism to levy i think the strength of the elms because the character of freddie is rooted so much in a specific trauma and incident with like the child killing and that being a tale of revenge and being a tale of like how our parents fail us overall. Like it's very much like Wes Craven is working out his own feelings towards his father who died at age six and who from the bits that I've read was not a very kind, loving, supportive man. Yeah. And I think that that's a figure who loomed very large in his life. And it's funny, like just before we started the show, my wife and I were watching like a hoarders episode because that's our quote unquote relaxing show right now, which is like as two therapists and psychologists, it's not relaxing to watch. (laughs) Um, And it was about a gentleman whose dad was actually a Nazi soldier um, who told his son, like, I want you to carry on these principles and the son rejected it, but grew on to be really messed up. Um, how the Elm Street first movies really crave and working that out. But to your point, I think that if you were to reboot this series, 
because the character of Freddy is so associated with Robert England that if you wanted to redo or reboot A Nightmare on Elm Street, I would do exactly what you just said and have it be an unknown, unseen entity that is really just your dreams terrorizing people and them trying to escape from yeah. that or playing It's also against like that. when you hear that story that's mm-hmm. recited or detailed in that article and then he and then Craven recited it in all these interviews and stuff. You're like, how do you not open the movie with that? Like, how mm-hmm. is that not the opening scene of this movie? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and then it's like, but then it comes almost like a Giallo movie, which is like, then it's the mystery of like, what happened to this kid? Mm-hmm. I mean, that obviously becomes a very different movie, but like that set piece is so powerful when you just hear it, that like seeing it played out. Um, and it also like, it's also terrifying to me because like, I didn't, you know, there's all this stuff that came up in recent years because, like, somebody made a documentary for HBO with, like, the uh, sleep paralysis. Yep. I think it's called Nightmare. Yeah. Something and, like that. And, it's the uh, same gentleman who did the Shining documentary, I believe. Oh, The Room 237. Or yeah. One? The Room 227. <laughs> it's a 227. With, Sher- with Sherman Helmsley? With <laughs> Saturday nights on NBC right after the Golden Girls. <laughs> Uh, no, it was Jack A was two two seven. My bad. <laughs> no, he uh, yeah, Sherman Helmsley was Amen. Uh, yes, that is correct. But uh, uh, and I never heard of like this shadow figure, like this hat, this figure in a hat. But mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine who I uh, who was my best friend when I was little, and then when my mom remarried, I moved, um, and I would still see him sometimes because my dad still lived in Philadelphia and whatnot. But uh, he went on and he made a movie. And I wish I could remember what it was to give him a plug. But he and a friend of his made a movie that was evolved uh, uh, around the idea of this, like, when you sleep, there's this figure in a hat. Because they both saw it separately. And and it also kind of says, like, for the fact that Freddy has a hat. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that maybe that's also where Craven is working towards, even though he says that that hat comes from the that that you know, that vagrant that he saw right. when he was a kid. But, uh, but I, I've had instances where I've, I've, I've been a victim of sleep paralysis and basically it's, it, it's terrifying because you wake up, but you can't move like your body's still asleep and, but you're, you're awake and you're conscious and it's happened to me once or twice. And then after seeing that documentary, it happened, you know, like, knowing that this kind of like terrifying shit happens while people are <laughs> like under this and mm-hmm. I woke up and I couldn't move. And, uh, and I was just like, Oh my God, like, is this dude going to come? <laughs> and you're almost anticipating like, and you know, like, do I see the man in the hat? And, uh, at the, and I was in bed with, uh, someone at that time. And, and in my mind, I'm yelling, like, wake me up wake me up mm-hmm. and uh she she woke up and she like all freaked out and she and i could see her waking up you know like i could see her but i can't move and she wakes me up and she's like what the hell is going on and uh i was like i don't know it's like a weird dream or whatever <laughs> but and i was like the next day i asked her i said when i was saying wake me up like how what did it sound like she's like you were kind of whispering it but in my head i was like screaming like screaming wake it out me loud. up um and 
you know, there have been movies now made about like these figures that people say they see uh, during these uh, these kind of episodes that they have. But, uh, you know, like having all that, like that's something that I just feel like, you know, I certainly don't want to put down uh, Nightmare on Elm Street because it's a totally different movie. But it's like, that's the movie I want to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, like, I'm almost disappointed that, not the sleep paralysis thing, but, like, that that's not the movie Craven was inspired to make from that story that he read. Uh, but, you know, the movie that he was inspired to make is, a, you know, is a classic. Pretty brilliant. So he can't, he can't be too disappointed. Well, it's, you know, we in losing track here, just I, I thought a little bit, um, he doesn't get to quite make 100% of what he wants because he sees this as a one-and-done movie. Yeah. And to me, the ending of this movie always confuses me a little bit because yeah. re-watching it again, you know, I'm wondering, like, does Nancy's plan actually work? Like, to me, like, Nancy is right up there with Laurie Strode in terms of, and Ginny from Friday the 13th Part 2 for exactly the reason you said, is that she's a lot more... She's not like Laurie Strode, who's like on the defensive and getting anything and everything at her disposal to kind of just ward the evil off. Like she's like taking it to him. And there's that moment where in the last dream sequence where Kruger like kind of like gives her like come and get me motion and she executes a perfect flying tackle. (laughs) I mean, it's basically like Dick Buckus out there on the field. Um so she's like running towards it in a way that most of what you know your heroines and horror movies or any character doesn't overall. But and then you get the Home Alone ending where basically like Kevin McAllister is taking notes for five years in the future. You know <laughs> what are you gonna do when Joe Pesci breaks into your home? Um, but like to me, like does the ending of the movie negate her victory a bit? Because I wonder like did any of that actually happen? Like was Freddie actually pulled into the real world or was that a dream within a dream? Yeah. And I know England has said, I interpret the ending of the movie as the start of the movie and everything before it was part of Nancy's longer dream. Um, Craven wanted to end it with just the friends driving off and Nancy gets her victory. Bob Shea wanted to leave it open for a sting. You know, that's how horror movies end. You have that last minute sting um, and, you know, I'm sure in the back of his head going like, if we, we can make some money in another one. Um, what are your thoughts on the end of this film and whether or not like it hurts Nancy's victory at all or whether it's just like a great ending? Because what they do is they use every ending, like they use four different endings and smush them into one. Yeah. Well, you know, I think. Um, you know. The thing is that it is totally unclear (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh and i don't know if it really leans towards anything i mean i think it and it really is left to up to interpretation and by that i mean not specifically like the the car and all that stuff because when she uh pulls Freddie out of the dream and they're running around the house and then John Saxon comes in and they run upstairs and Freddie's killing her mom. Spoiler alert <laughs> in case you've gotten this far to two, yeah. two podcasts. Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then it's like, 
the uh you know like the bed you know like the 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 corpse like f- falls into the you know floats into the bed i mean all that is like to me as a viewer that has always set up the question there to me like is this real or is she still like that's like you know, the fact that john saxon's seeing that too <laughs> Right. And then he's like, okay, well, you know what? I'll wait for you downstairs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I got to go process this. You know, like that is total dream stuff there, you know? So like even it always came to me at that point of like, uh, you know, maybe that's maybe this whole thing, you know, like she never pulled him out. So like it's set up for me there as a viewer. And then the idea of like <clears throat> turning her back on him. I mean, I think that's, I don't know how you make that more, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know how you make that like clear, not, not more clear, but more, uh, climactic mm-hmm. than it is. I mean, it's narratively dramatically climactic, but like cinematically, not really that climactic. Right. Uh, and I've always been very satisfied with that, even though it's not like this big, it's like, I'm, okay, like I'm not going to let you, Mm-hmm. scare me anymore and i'm just gonna go towards the door and then he kind of just like fades into stars or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> like i understand like that is not a fulfilling ending for every viewer uh for me i always thought that was really powerful but i understand that it's not necessarily exciting uh and then what happens is if you, like you said they then they pull like all these different endings so like if you look on like a copy of one of the DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever, they have all these different cuts of the ending. Um, and if you look at like the happy ending, the problem, you know, where it's like they just drive off and nothing happens. The problem is when she walks out, her mom is so hyper realistic, like we were yes. saying with dreams before that it's hard. Like you almost can't interpret it as reality. Cause it's wish fulfillment. It's yeah. absolutely what, if Nancy were to like bake three wishes, that would be one of them. Her mom would be clean and sober and have no urge to ever pick up the bottle again. And in a way, like had she just gotten in the car and they drive away, we would still be questioning, you know, like, wait, what? Like, yeah. Like, didn't she just get burned to death a moment ago? Like, didn't I just see her and why are her friends still alive? Like, but I kind of like the idea of that as a, yeah, like you, that could still leave you to question what was going on. Yeah, because it's just like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm not going to drink mm-hmm. anymore. I just don't feel yeah. like it. Uh, yeah. It's it's still so, you know, like bizarrely uh, dreamlike mm-hmm. that it almost is more open ended than the ending that we have. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, uh, I I mean, I agree that like Craven like. Shay apparently pushing for like Freddie driving the car. I agree with like the, so the story goes that, that crate that Craven's like, uh, uh, compromise was like, well, what if we do this? Like, I like the ending, but I do recognize that like, it's not final. And, but to me as a viewer, it's never to get back to your question from three hours ago before I went on this. That's all right, man. This is that's totally fine. That's what we do here. So. Uh, it's never like cheapened mm-hmm. her her success, her uh, her achievement. What is funny to me, or what I've been thinking more and more about, I don't know how much like 
research. I know Wes Craven was a college professor, but I don't know how much research that he did into dreaming. Cause you have that scene where like, uh, and I guess he named the hospital after his ex-wife or one of the producers, but they have the sequence where Nancy goes to do a dream study and yeah. the doctor there is like, I don't even know where dreams come from. Like who knows, but there's a very like, I'm going to talk about this more, I think, in a future episode because I want to kind of flesh it out a little bit more. But Nancy engages in something called lucid dreaming, which is this idea that you can train yourself to know that you're dreaming or that you're in a nightmare and react accordingly. And one of the things that, like, the way Nancy confronts Freddie at the end of the movie is actually a therapeutic technique that counselors will train their patients to do if they're suffering from nightmare disorder. They will train them to do lucid dreaming and specifically confront their monster by telling them like, you don't have any power over me. You're not real. You can't really hurt me. So that, whether he knew it or not, is rooted in a very specific therapeutic technique that can be taught. I can't teach it. I'm not there with my clients. Um, but I found that really fascinating. And, and I think maybe the ending has only, my perception on the ending has only shifted since I've become a counselor and study nightmares and how people interpret them and how in the effects they have on their psyche that you have this real awesome victory for Nancy and then it's like snatched away and I've said this not here but I've said elsewhere like I always take the last minute of these horror movies and throw them out the window like you have this like big confrontation with a monster the good guy wins and then 30 seconds later like jump scare credits go up and it throws everything out the window like what was the point yeah so i'm always like eh, the last 30 seconds are just marketing don't worry about it like they're not part of the movie so which is weird you know <laughs> yeah. but that's just the way my brain works i think when i watch these movies yeah well i mean you know it's the it's it depends on how you view success or mm-hmm. um you know like one could argue that she her victory is maybe not that she vanquishes freddie but that she is strong enough to not let it scare her anymore <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. like like even mm-hmm. though even if even with the fact that you know maybe freddie you know freddie still exists for all intents and purposes in this right. ending she's still victorious for having been able to control her fear and be able to mm-hmm. win the win the battle but not the war you know right. I, mean? I like that <laughs> you know what i mean yep i like that um you know but it's something that this idea of like the lucid dreaming but like i know there's something that uh kind of just what you were talking about and, and i was talking about this it reminds me of uh and then tying it into you know what i was talking about how mm-hmm. how like i wish that almost Freddie wasn't personified uh, in in what Craven tried to do. I think that's one of the reasons why I particularly love New Nightmare, is mm-hmm. because it gets. I think it gets closer in conception to like something that's not necessarily 
Freddy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's more about just like evil being sure. Like yep. Yeah. And you know, and it's and, what the Final Destination movies, which I really enjoy. It's yeah. a fun like. There's no bad guy to kill in those movies. It's just death. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's why you know I, I you know in mouth in the mouth of madness is such a big mm-hmm. deal for me, and that came out just like on the heels of New Nightmare. But it's mm-hmm. and even as flawed as New Nightmare is, like I love that conception of it, of what's actually been going on this whole time but it's kind of there in this ending that you're talking about like her being able to strip freddie of his power by turning her her back on him does in a way make freddie something other than just like the dream reincarnation of this killer Mm -hmm. it does make him something other than just like a character but something more ethereal. <laughs> right. It's fear. more of a concept. It's more yeah. of a construct that can never, Freddy can never really ever be defeated because we're always going to be afraid of something. Yeah. We're always going to have fears. We're always going to have these anxieties. The trick becomes how do you, what bag of coping skills and strategies can you use to manage your anxieties? And I, my clients right now, every week, they're like, I feel a little bit more anxious this week and I'm not sure why. And I'm just on my computer waving my hands at the camera going, look around the world right now, my <laughs> friend. Like, And I specifically said to one patient, I go, if you told me right now that you're not anxious about anything, I would probably have you committed. And yeah. I said it jokingly, like I wouldn't really, like can't yeah. do that. Um, <laughs> like, But I would be more worried if you said, yeah, there's nothing really bothering me right now. I'd be a little bit nervous, so. Yeah. Um, last thing I want to discuss, and part of the reason I want to have you on here is I would love to get your take on where Charles Bernstein's score sits kind of in the pantheon of iconic horror scores overall. And what do you think works about it? Or what do you think might be lacking? Like, where do you feel Bernstein's score fits in terms of horror scores we love? Uh, I mean, I think it fits pretty near the top to me. Yeah. I mean, um, the the series itself is interesting musically because no one composer ever mm-hmm. returned. Each each film has kind of its own composer and its own musical right. identity. Um, and in some cases, like with Chris Young's orchestral score for mm-hmm. the second one, he doesn't even. I don't even think he quotes Bernstein. He doesn't. It's the one that doesn't, it's the only one that doesn't have that kind of sing songy nursery rhyme. Did young address that when you interviewed him at all? Did he say why he wanted to avoid? Yeah. He talks about it. uh, He talks about that score in kind of a funny way. It's, it's a Mm -hmm. score that he hasn't. It's a score that he's not particularly proud of. Uh, the Nightmare 2 score. Yeah. Uh, but he's also very hard on himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I talked to him like, you know, why did you do it orchestral? Why didn't you um, reference Bernstein's score? And he tells a story, and this is, Charles never said this. And so I, this is strictly Chris's 
perspective and his hmm. uh, assumptions about it. So there's no, it's alleged. Just uh, mm-hmm. he part of his getting the job was that he was going to do it an or an, an orchestral score. That was like what Bob Shea hired him to do, mm-hmm. and he suspects. And when you hear Bernstein talk about it, you don't get any sense of this because of the way he talks about the budget. But Chris's perspective is that he feels like maybe Bob Shea expected Bernstein to do an orchestral score. Mm -hmm. And when it came back as a synth score, he was really kind of angry about it and disappointed Mm. because he made Chris, according according to Chris, he, he wanted as many players as they can get. And Chris said that he came to the recording session and counted... How many players? Shay did. Yeah, to make Interesting. Sh- to make sure that Chris wasn't, you know, cheaping yeah. out. He, he wanted to did, make sure there was like seventy-two players or whatever it was. Now, did Chris say if Bob Shay did that wearing the leather daddy outfit for free? <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think that was the case. But uh, we're going to say na- it is. from now on. That's how the story going to go. That's how the story goes. And in terms of like not quoting the score at all, mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like Chris just said like it was not a uh, it was not demanded of him to do mm-hmm. it, and so he just didn't do it. From what I understand about the third one, and I could be wrong because uh, as much as I I, I tried to interview Angelo. Uh, Benalamente, uh, and he was not interested. Um, my understanding is that Angelo didn't do it either, and it was uh, who directed it? Chuck Russell? Yep. The third one? It was Russell who then put in the nods to yeah. uh, like edited them in after the fact, and that Angelo's actual score, Benalamente's score, didn't actually have it. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Cr- uh, with Craig Saffin, who did four Craig said uh, he had only ever seen the first one. He thought it was a good theme and he would have wanted somebody to do it, you know, if it was his. So he put it in a a handful of times, but it also helps create unity in the series. And um, it feels so ingrained in the character of Freddie that sing Sami rhyme and that like really the, way that piano the way that synth hits at the beginning those notes and the way they're spaced out it's so haunting yeah no what's interesting is that bernstein told me that he because he's featured in the first book if anybody's interested both chris and charles are are featured in the first score to death book Mm -hmm. um he said that he actually came up with you know the Mm -hmm. like pretty late into the process and he went to uh, Craven and said, "Look, I have. I would like to be. Uh, I want a. I would like to put a melodic theme because I guess mm-hmm. in his mind, horror movies didn't have a whole lot of that mm-hmm. going on. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think that's more his perspective. I mean, Halloween certainly Carpenter scores, uh, for the most part, aren't necessarily melodic in the same mm-hmm. way. But um, one could certainly argue that uh, Manfredini's score, Harry Manfredini's scores for the Friday the Thirteenth movies." Um, you know, were maybe not mm-hmm. as uh, they were more relying on the motif of like the k- right. k- mama. Whereas Bernstein really wanted to give it a melody, and so he came up with this quirky little melody that does feel a little bit off. Um, it's, it feels like it's 
it's like it 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 gets to a point in that melody where it goes someplace that I don't think like our ears would necessarily expect it to go. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the things that's successful about it. But he said to Craven that I would like to do this and then I can kind of use it throughout the score. And Craven's like, sure, go for it. Uh, but he also adds like the, um, this, he also kind of quotes in his own way that like the jump rope nursery rhymey thing, mm-hmm. uh, which was, he was kind of locked into. He didn't write that. But he found that he could kind of work it in uh, because one of the main things that music does, I mean, most of what, if anybody has read or decides to read uh, my books or listen to the interviews I've done for the podcast, one of the things that I talk about a lot with the composers is what does a score do? And the truth is that it does many, many, many things. And it's not something that you ever think about because the score is just one piece of the puzzle. And in maybe the best case scenarios, you don't even notice it while you're watching the movie because if it's doing its job, it's just, you know, it's just the crutch that the that the story's leading on and it's holding it up. But you don't necessarily see the wires, you know, the effect of the music. Um, But one of the things that it does do is it creates an identity and a unity uh, throughout the movie. And one thing that I never really thought about until watching it this time is that Bernstein plays the hell out of that theme throughout the entire, yeah. like it was shocking how much it is throughout mm-hmm. that movie. It's probably in it more than Freddie himself is in it. Oh, He's totally. A, but it always reminds you of this danger that is unseen. Yeah. Well, that's exactly, that's the, that's one of the other mm-hmm. amazing things about music i mean you think about jaws i mean you never see, you hardly ever see that shark but you hear mm-hmm. the duh, duh, and it creates it 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 is music can take the place of the monster, the monster. and it does absolutely it, and it does it in jaws it does it in suspiria even though you've never made it past the first 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> i can't do it i love the soundtrack you know goblin score i've listened to the score and the score is wonderful but Claudio Simonetti, who plug, 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 is mm-hmm. also in the first book from Goblin. He talks about how, like, the voices, like the witches and and all mm-hmm. that, and the howling sounds of that were a way to do that because, like, you weren't ever going to see the witch until the last five minutes of that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was a way to have those witches be present. And that's exactly what Harry Manfredini talks about with the ma-ma-ma. That was like, you don't see who the killer is until the end and so you have to he's like you know he was afraid that whenever you see uh the killer's point of view in night in friday the 13th uh the audience would think like this is a weird shot they wouldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. understand that it's the perspective and so he created this this motif in the music that would cue the audience to know oh like we're seeing this through the killer's eyes right and and I would say that it maybe does it in a less overt way in Bernstein's score um, than the examples that I just uh, mentioned, but it certainly does it. And the other thing that I found really interesting on this viewing is that there's more to the score than just that. Like there's some like pretty rock and cues. I'm, I'm thinking in particular, I was thinking the boiler room chase that's 
early in the movie between Nancy, when Nancy first encounters Freddy in the boiler room, like when she walks out of the school and into that room, which by the way, I love like when Craven explained, well, how do you let people know you're still in the school? And even though we're in like a boiler room, we just put a sign up that says no students allowed. <laughs> um, like that's love that low budget filmmaking. Yeah, well, that's um, all you need. There's, there's a propulsion to that score. Like it's really fast moving. It really ramps up. Like the stakes are really high at this point. Yeah. Like that section I think is like for a second piece of music, like just like with Halloween, you have the main score. And I'd say like the shape stocks, the shape stocks is probably my favorite piece of music from any Halloween movie. Yeah. Um, and this would be like behind the main score, like that scene of Nancy running, away from Freddy in that room. Like the music there just absolutely slaps. I love it. Well, it's also to me has shades of um, throughout the whole score, but those cues have shades of Carpenter, but pre when Carpenter does it, like we start to Mm -hmm. hear that kind of Carpenter scoring, maybe in they live. And especially like a lot of those cues in, Nightmare on Elm Street reminded me of what Carpenter does in the score for In the Mouth of Madness, which is like Mm -hmm. 10 years later almost. Um, And so, like, I think, you know, since Carpenter toured and he put out these albums and Synthwave has become its own, like, subgenre of music and all that, there's, like, this term of, like, Carpenter-esque. And Mm -hmm. the truth is, like, it may be... But it's also, in this case, Bernstein-esque, mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And But this is another example of, a per, actually a perfect example of the thing I was talking about earlier with the makeup of how like technology kind of shaped the way movies were made and something like the way Freddy looks and like the effectiveness of that makeup and being able to for even England to be able to perform through that makeup wouldn't have been possible before that. Um, the music is the same way. And that's because of technology, like the way synthesizers were being developed and then uh, going from analog to like digital and uh, being able to sample things in the mid eighties for the first time, even though it was like 12 seconds, it was still like, Oh my gosh, look what I can do. And you have mm-hmm. like, you know, now we have, you know, I got on my, I've been working at home and I, and I edit television stuff. So, you know, I have like terabyte gigs sitting right here on my desk, but yeah. like back then it was like, Oh wow. You get like, I got like 24 megabytes <laughs> <laughs> of space to play with, mm-hmm. but it was one of the things that like made, effective scores possible for these movies that had very low budgets because you didn't need to uh employ 72 you know players like chris did for the second movie right bernstein could say like look this is the money i have and most of those guys i mean from the business uh point of view of the way those a lot of those scores were done were what they call a package deal which is like Mm -hmm. and i don't know this for fact with Bernstein's deal but I do know that like even as far as back as like Bill Conti talked about it when I interviewed him about rock for the Rocky Mm -hmm. score like he got X amount of dollars for the score so what that that was the budget so he has to he writes the music but then he also has to pay the the players he has to pay for the studio basically they gave him whatever $25,000 let's Mm -hmm. say 
And then whatever's left over is how much he makes on that score. Right. <laughs> and, and which isn't going to be a lot by the time you hire yeah. all your players and book a studio. But, you know, uh, that was still a pretty, like, Rocky was, a, you know, it was a low-budget Hollywood right. picture, but it was still, like, a major motion picture. When we get into the 80s, the technology makes it so that, unfortunately, it, you know, it because of the advancements of technology, the budgets for music come down. Right. Um, but it also allows a guy like Charles Bernstein to say, like, look, who had been doing orchestral scores from anything from, like, Charles Bronson movies to Cujo, you know, mm -hmm. working in all kinds of genres, uh, to then say... Like, I have X amount of dollars. I could make a lackluster score with um, a limited amount of players at a studio. Or I could sit at home and I could maybe make something really interesting with this new technology. And one of the beautiful things about horror movies and why most of these, I would say all the guys that I've talked to, and it's like 40-something now uh, composers, one of the reasons they all love horror scoring horror movies even though if they are not necessarily horror movie fans but the reason why they like working into that genre is because like we talked about with the concept of using dreams being like this wide open palette for these filmmakers to be able to explore some really cool shit that's the way horror movies are in general for composers mm -hmm. like they're not you know as long as it works it doesn't necessarily have to be what we consider good music, you know, right. like, cause it's so atmosphere is such an important thing. Um, and so, you know, when I interviewed Harry, Bur uh, Harry Manfredini, he's like, well, with horror movies, it's like, you can use everything and the kitchen sink. Like that's the beauty of it. It's like, it's open to experimentation. And so it was why budgets and, this like kind of creative freedom is why synthesizers took on such a big role in 80s mm -hmm. horror movies. And I would say that Bernstein's score might not get the recognition of something like John Carpenter's music in general, or sp especially John Carpenter's music for Halloween. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say, I would certainly argue that it's equally as effective. Um, maybe in, in a lot of cases, uh, a, a better listen away from the movie. Sure. It's <laughs> and, something I, when I do my writing, I listen to the score a lot. Yeah. And it's partially because of the, the melody, you know, like yeah. if there's something to latch onto, uh, that's more pleasing to the ear than just like, you know, the Halloween theme, which is, you know, nobody's going to deny its effectiveness and how great it is. And, and, you know, certainly, I've, I've listened to it away from the mm -hmm. movie plenty and it's exciting when he plays it live, but there's some, there's a beauty to Bernstein's mm -hmm. score for this. Uh, you know, aside from the more driving cues that we were talking about earlier, there is like, there's a beauty to it and it, it does create a specific un, like intangible feeling about the movie. It feels like it's a score and that main theme, the main theme is meant to almost lull the viewer to sleep. And you get this idea that it's Freddy waiting for someone to fall asleep so he can pounce on them. So he can come out and he can play because he can't yeah. operate when you're awake. So this idea that like, it's a sweet little melody. It has that kind of lullaby quality exactly, to yeah. it. 
Um, and it's so effective where Carpenter's Halloween theme is meant to set your teeth on edge. It's meant to like take your anxiety level and spike it three notches. It's meant to get your heart racing. And it's harder to listen to that when you just have your headphones in and you're trying to like work and focus on something because all of a sudden your brain starts going in eight different directions yeah. where Bernstein's main score, it gives you this false sense of peace and security before things start to go sure. batshit crazy. Yeah. So I think we need to do something here. I think that we need to, for our listeners, um, get them a copy of your book. So we're <laughs> going to do a little Twitter contest. So we'll post this on Twitter, but listeners look out for it at pod and pendulum. I want to know not your favorite horror movie score, because I think we're going to get like 20 people that answer Halloween. I want to hear your most maybe underappreciated score, something that you as a listener turn to time and time again, like for example, the It Follows score or the score from The Guest, which I think are two modern examples of terrific horror movie scores. Um, I want to hear what you're listening to when you're listening to like maybe uh, under the radar horror movie score, because I need to build my Spotify playlist back <laughs> up while I do some writing here. Yeah. So this has been, and I've had so much fun with this conversation and it's gone and like some really fun and cool directions. Um, so I'm really, I can't wait for our listeners to hear this. Um, Blake, where, if our listeners now want to order your book and they don't want to take a chance on winning it, tell them <laughs> a little bit about exactly what score to death is and where they can get their hands on it and why they should want to get their hands on it. Sure. Uh, score to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers is a book that came out in 2016. It's a collection of 14 interviews with uh, composers that have made a significant contribution to the horror genre, including many of the people we've talked to today, Harry Manfredini, who did Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. Charles Bernstein, uh, Chris Young, John Carpenter is in it. Uh, Alan Howarth, who worked with Carpenter throughout the 80s, is in it. Uh, a couple of people from Goblin, including Claudio Simonetti, Fabio Fritzi, uh, who did Fulci's movies. It's uh, a Joseph Bashara, who, who did like Insidious and The Conjuring. So it gets uh, some more modern examples as well. And it's uh, more than a m book about horror film music. It's a book about the creative process of creating uh, music for movies but it's uh, through the lens of creating music for horror movies, if that makes sense. Like, yes, we talk about specific movies and director relationships and how those scores came to be, but it's also about how music for movies gets made. Um, you know, it's that's always like the catch-22 for me is like it appeals to horror movie fans, and I feel that like some people that are just interested in film music or interested in becoming a composer might shrug it off of being like this. Oh, it's a horror movie book, but it's really about the process of uh, making music for mm -hmm. movies. Uh, and we get these insights through all these, you know, amazing composers that just so happen to have made really great horror movie music. Most of them great music otherwise. And it's available on Amazon. Um, I don't know if it's still available on Barnes and Noble, but you can mm -hmm. certainly get it on Amazon or if people are interested in an autographed copy by me, whether my autograph is worth anything, you can order a copy from me directly at scoredtodeath.com or you can contact me on uh, social media at scoredtodeath. Mm -hmm. 
And you have a follow-up to this book. I'm in the process of finishing the follow-up. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a little bit bigger. It's uh, going to be 16 composers, some of which are composers that were featured on my podcast. So Score to Death mm-hmm. the podcast is something that I started after I completed, sometime after I completed Score the, mm-hmm. the book and I wanted to continue the work and it didn't look like another book was going to get done. So I started doing it as a podcast. Mm-hmm. Long story short, the opportunity to do a book uh, came basically if I was willing to work at a different financial deal, which meant basically like, I'll, you know, I'll probably never make any money. <laughs> okay. But part of the agreement was, that I could use some of the interviews from the podcast. Mm-hmm. So some of the interviews that are in the podcast are featured in the new book, but in almost all cases, there's uh, I re-interviewed them, so there's bonus material, uh, mm-hmm. updates, and I'd say at least half the composers in the new book are just new interviews with composers mm-hmm. that I haven't interviewed. So I don't want to get the impression that like, oh, well, I, you know, I've listened to the podcast. I could, yeah, I or you have it as an audio book right now. If I just yeah. To, yeah, but it's like, you know, there's so many new interviews with uh, some amazing composers that weren't on the podcast and probably never will be, at least in this form. Maybe I'll mm-hmm. interview them about something else. But uh 16 composers ranging. Uh, I found some different regions. We have some Japanese composers mm-hmm. in this one. I swear, last one, there were some Italian composers. Uh, we have at least, we have, uh, let me think, just, we have one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies represented in the new book. Um, mm-hmm. Some more recent stuff represented. Uh, like, uh, there's a, you know, I haven't been announcing anybody that's in the book, but just as a little tease, there is a really fascinating interview with Disaster Piece about the It Follows score. Oh, you, that's going to be great. Since I you brought it up, to. where we almost go track by track and talk about, you know, in a way that I don't do with a lot of the other composers mm-hmm. because his resume just isn't as long yet because he's, he's yeah. still young. You know, it's hard to get into, like, you're talking to a guy like Charles Bernstein, and just be and just focus on one score, which right. you can do, but that's not the way I did it. But since Disaster Piece hadn't, you know, he doesn't have, he hasn't been doing this for forty years. Yeah. <laughs> we really got to sink our teeth into that specific score. Um, so that's you know that's something that's one of the new interviews that people can look forward to in the new one. And hopefully we're shooting for a fall release, or uh, you know uh, definitely before Christmas is what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. So we're how of, much is and I know on your Bill and Ted's episode, I know like Dion, your um, show partner mentioned how he has a book, like a work of fiction coming out and things have been pushed back because so many things are pushed back with COVID. We don't want to have this all of a sudden like glut of entertainment come out and things kind of get washed, you know, kind of like get pushed aside because there's just too much stuff. Um, how much does covid effect like the release or does it at all for something like this i mean my publisher and editor haven't mentioned it so i have to assume that (laughs) we're still on track Um, okay i I would hope they would tell me Mm -hmm. Uh, uh dion's book uh which is a is a work of fiction um got pushed back uh but also I think his publisher is a lot bigger than mine. So mm-hmm. they probably had to put stuff, more things on hold mm-hmm. earlier on. So they probably, their their whole schedule may have 
shifted. And it was also right. with, with Dion's book specifically, uh, just, you know, most people aren't going to care about this, but it was also like, well, they could do it now, but if we push it back, you can get a hard copy release. And he was interested okay. in that. Um, so they could have pushed yeah. forward, but uh, it was, you know, they, they would rather have, the publisher would have rather held back. Mine, mm-hmm. as far as I know, we're still on track. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, hopefully... I was hoping by Halloween, but I'm hoping at mm-hmm. least by Christmas it'll yeah. we'll have a, a new oh. score to death book. Speaking of Dion, tell our listeners who, if they aren't listening to Saturday Night Sleepovers, they should be. Uh, I will say that this is a show I love. Long podcasts, like I my favorite podcast is an eight hour wrestling podcast, and like <laughs> they do literally eight hours, like and two hours of it are them like pitching patreon so that i fast forward through a bit um but no one should fast forward through my pitches on why they should become a patron that you know um but i you guys you and dion go really deep i think not just into the film but you go into the weeds like the making of the context of the movie during its time and also do such a wonderful job of like personalizing the movies like why these mean so much to you why they were chosen so it's not like you just pick a title off a shelf and say well we think this is going to get a lot of downloads so let's just do it it feels like every everything feels curated yeah very personally so in your show so tell our listeners a little bit about saturday night sleepovers well saturday night movie sleepovers sorry I'm Most, missing it. Yeah. everybody everybody does that it was a poor mm-hmm. name that i came up with unfortunately it's too long but mm-hmm. uh it's uh it used to be we used to do it every other week but uh mm-hmm. this year we've because of the book and because Dion's working on his book and it just became too it just as you know I mean we've been doing it we're we're about to go we're about to celebrate our 6th anniversary so we've been mm-hmm. doing it we did it uh every 2 weeks like clockwork we never took mm-hmm. a week off we did it like clockwork for uh, five and a half years. And so it was a big commitment. And uh, so we've slowed down a little bit. So far, we've been doing a monthly thing. Although for October, we're talking about going back. We've always, uh, other than the first year, October, we've always done uh, uh, like four episodes for October. Mm-hmm. It's four horror movies. And so we're talking about maybe doing that, even though we've lessened our schedule for Halloween. We might still do our October extravaganza. Mm-hmm. But uh Deanna and I have been talking about movies since 1997, and so at some point he talked me into let's record them. So, <laughs> and I think that's such a wonderful like for listeners that don't haven't heard it. Like what I love about this show is it feels so lived in. Like you can feel 20 plus years of friendship when you guys are talking about these movies and it like his story about run, the story running into like Harrison Ford of the street and just like <laughs> things like that. Like there's just these wonderful, wonderful anecdotes that you don't get unless like there's a real shared warmth between the hosts. Yeah. And I know I'm blowing a bunch of smoke up your ass right now, but like your show was one of the ones that got me through grad school when I was ready to pull all my hair out. Well, so. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, you wouldn't be the first one to, quote the strength of the show being our relationship Mm. so it's nice that that's uh that's become a real plus for people Mm. i mean i think we have a chemistry together that uh you know look dion really at this point is family like when i was in college and i Mm -hmm. you know like i couldn't go home 
for Thanksgiving. I went to Dion's house for Thanksgiving because Dion's mm-hmm. house was his parents' house was closer <laughs> mm-hmm. than my house, and so Dion really is like my brother at this point. And so, yeah. uh, even though you know most of the our nostalgic stories stem back from before we met. Uh, because a lot of the concepts of the show of like having you know having movie sleepovers was something mm-hmm. that I loved uh, growing up as a you know in middle yes. school and mm-hmm. even late elementary school and into high school with my friends and so when we came up with the idea to do a show that was one thing that I pushed for was like let's do something that's rooted in nostalgia little did I know that you know so many are and so many more have been mm-hmm. since we started doing it but i didn't listen to podcasts at that point so um and it just evolved into the long format just evolved through that we just uh talk we just like talking and we like talking to each other and it and originally the show was really an excuse for us to get together and do what we would like to do uh Mm -hmm. but it gave us a you know it gave us a schedule to do it in so it kind of made us hang out together at a time when you get older and you're in your 30s mm-hmm. uh and you start you stop hanging out with your friends as much because yeah. you have other <laughs> things to do mm-hmm. and other commitments so it kind of was like a, a reason for us to get together and um and you know we each have interests and some of the movies are more he's more interested in some of the movies i'm more interested in now that we've done you know over 100 movies on the show some of the ones that we both are interested in or getting fewer and uh, uh, further between. But, um, you know, one of us is always, you know, really excited about it. And the other one does their best to get excited about it. Or mm-hmm. if we're not familiar, it's like, that's an interesting perspective too. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, like I've never, I didn't, I didn't grow up with smoking the bandit. So right. watching smoking the bandit with Dion who loves smoking the bandit mm-hmm. was like, you know, that's an interesting perspective too. And we yeah. both have different interests within the movie. Like Dion's very much into like the making of trivia. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in like, well, what do we think about it? You know, like yeah. when do you do you remember seeing it for the first time? And yeah, um, and so we just are good complement because we both mm-hmm. are interested in different things about the movies. And the other thing that I think is a this the great some of the selling points about it are the compliment we get most often is that like it really does feel like you're sitting around and talking about movies with your friends, which is like the best compliment you like we yeah. could get. And, and I guess on a subconscious level, that's what we were shooting for, but it's great that people respond that way to it. But also what has become evident through our vocal listeners who message us is that we all shared, I mean, of our generation, we all shared like this weird like you know similar childhood so when you're telling stories on your when you guys were talking about nightmare on elm street last on your last episode and talking about um and jerry's talking about putting like tapioca pudding on his face yes yep. <laughs> like that didn't happen to me but sure like we all have memories of stuff like yeah. that and we all remember going to school and having like six kids dress up like freddy krueger for Halloween. yeah absolutely and so we do it in a much more broad sense in that like we cover all genres on our show, whereas you focus on horror movies. Um, and uh, we, we've done movies back to the thirties and we've done movies in the sixties and seventies, and we've even done some more contemporary movies. Uh, but we do tend to focus on the movies yeah. we grew up with. And we found that through our listeners communicating with us, uh, 
we've all had the same childhood, no matter where we are in the world, which is fascinating. It is absolutely like how these experiences and nostalgia, how rooted in nostalgia they are. And we all have, and how we feel about them might be a little bit different, but how like, that's why my favorite show on Netflix is like toys we grew up with, like the toys from the eighties. And my daughter who's 10 sees that and she's like, dad, you were so lucky to have all this stuff back then. (laughs) You know, like these are the coolest things ever. Um, Absolutely. So, all right, I'm going to start rambling here and I owe my wife a date night out for ice cream. So thank you so much, Blake, for coming on. And we, we got you penciled in when we get to Argento in the mother (laughs) of tears. But if there are any other series that you feel passionate about, um, just let me know. We'll pencil it in. Like we'll definitely make it happen. Right. So I'm always willing blast. to fill in too. Uh, just let me know right. if it's last minute if I'm available. I'm happy to All slip right, in man. there. Um, so thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be back next week where we're going to sadly move on from the first Elm Street movie. Um, but we're going to go move on to the first movie in the series that I saw hiding behind my friend's sofa. Um, being very confused about some of the things I was seeing going on at 11 years old. Um, with Daddy Freddy and Freddy's Revenge, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Until then, see you guys next week.